Next up is our game chat with Sean O'Donoghue from Black Shamrock, the Irish game studio now part of the Virtuous Group. Welcome to the Game Chat Series on Vision Talk. I'm Sergi. And I'm Alan. Our guest today is Sim O'Donoghue. Sim is a senior level designer at Black Shamrock. So first of all, while you are creating a game, does everyone want to be the designer of the game? Um, so I think the answer to that is generally yes. So the, the first thing that we do as the design team is kind of to, to lay out the rules of the game. Um, but then, you know, it comes the time where we have to then ask the programmers to build the game for us. And at that stage, the programmers suddenly gain a lot of control <laughs> over the process that previously we, we thought we had. Um, so there'll be many times where, you know, we'll come to a programmer, we'll request a, a design and the, the response will be, no, that's not possible because of this technical problem or this technical problem. And suddenly we're in over our heads. So uh, it really benefits um, designers to have a good understanding of both programming and art so that we can basically communicate with our teammates to decide what is really possible, what isn't really possible and, and maintain control over the process to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, uh, making games is very much a, a team exercise. You know, uh, a lot of studios will be 200 people making these large games. Uh, so there's no way you can fully contain design within the design team. And it would be unfair to the rest of the team. You know, uh, at the end of the day, we have to decide what goes in. But if we refuse to take feedback, uh, that's just bad design. You know, a, a designer isn't the be all end all of a game. Everyone is involved. QA is a huge effect uh, on the design based on, you know, they play the game and they it's not just up to them to tell us if a game works or doesn't work. It, it's to decide if it's fun or interesting. So we have to take all that kind of feedback into account. Um, art will have a huge impact as well in that they're deciding what the game looks like. And a lot of our job as a designer is to draw attention to the correct elements in a game. Um, you know, if you're walking through a level, we need to determine where you look. If we want the player to look at this specific item, we need to, to do that. And we need to talk to art a lot about how to draw players' attention. So things like lighting will have a huge effect on design, things like art style, uh, that kind of thing. So... Yeah, I think everyone wants to be a designer, and in a way, everyone everyone is a little bit. Um, they're just not the ones who have to write all the documentation uh, that goes along with it. That's more our job. So. so you have talked about many things that a designer does or that they ask people to do it for them, like if it's possible or not. So what do you actually do? Like, So um, I think that breaks down to a, a couple, like two kind of key factors. There is the type of designer you are. Because a lot of people think there's just a game designer and a programmer and an artist, but there is roughly about 10 different titles you can have as a designer. But really what it breaks down to, the main kind of two headings is system designers and content designers is kind of how I think about it. So um, a system designer may never actually touch, in the old days, they didn't even really need to touch a computer. Uh, they would just write documents down, hand them off to a programmer, the programmer would make it. Um, a content designer is generally a lot more involved in the, the actual process of making the game. So, for example, I'm a level designer. So what that means is I actually have to be in the engine, like the game engine that we use to create the game, placing things within that world. So if you think about it in terms of going back to the original Super Mario Brothers, someone had to put those blocks down to decide where Mario goes. So a system designer might say Mario can run at this speed, jump this height, When they get the mushroom, he gets bigger. But the level designer is the one who actually goes in and says, this is where you get that mushroom. This is where that enemy is placed. This is the height of the pipe. 
Um, so there's a lot of these kind of differences between them. At the moment, I'm in a role called technical designer, which is basically a hybrid of a programmer and a, a designer because I was trained as a programmer originally. So there's a, there is some definite crossover there. Um, and then you'll even get UI designers uh, who have to be artists as well, because they're the ones who actually design the user interface for the player. So they'll need to design buttons. So they won't need as much artistic skill as an actual game artist, but they certainly need to be able to put together these things. Um, so there is a lot of crossover there. And it'll also depend on the other factor is the, the timeline of the project. So in pre-production, almost all designers are more system designers. There's nothing, you know, there's no game built yet. So at the beginning, we're all just writing documentation. Uh, and once we have the basic outline, the basic rules of the game, at that point, we can start to bring in programmers. Once the programmers build a framework for us, um, we can start to actually play with that framework. So generally, you're best off knowing a bit about everything, like I said before. But if you're in a very specialized role, you don't need to know everything. But it, it definitely helps to know a little bit of everything. A quick question there on the programmers. A lot of games that are built on like Unreal or... If you're taking Unreal, uh, you, you start with templates in Unreal. So you have a third person template or a first person template. But if the character, basically all of the, the all that those frameworks, the basic frameworks do is allow the character to run around with a camera behind them. But if you want to say, give that player a weapon of any sort, you'll need to then have a programmer come in and, and code in that weapon for you. Or in the case of say something along the lines of a Grand Theft Auto, add a car to the game. You know, you need to program in a whole set of new movement options for the how each car works, how each, you know, the AI in the game, for example, as well, will be another thing that's just not included. Um, at the moment, we're dealing with a situation where there is a character and then that character rides uh, like mounted creatures. And the programmers had to come up with a whole system for how the mounts work and how to get on top of the mount in the first place. You know, we can't just have a character walk over and suddenly become mounted. Someone has to decide how that works, how that that system kind of works in the whole game. So that's kind of what the programmers do on top of the, the basic stuff is everything else almost i know it's kind of a vague answer but anything that's not in the framework that you require um it's kind of the programmer's job and the other thing would be a huge amount of um anything multiplayer uh, requires a huge amount of coding support just to get everything to talk to each other I'm working on any any title that ends up with a multiplayer focus we end up with a lot of programming dedicated purely to the multiplayer side of things would you say that this multiplayer characteristic is like one of the most complicated things to do or is there like anything that is like oh that's annoying <laughs> i wouldn't like to do that um, for me personally yeah. multiplayer has been the bane of my existence <laughs> on a lot of projects um you know you you go in you you build something and it works perfectly uh, and then suddenly you load up a second player and they're like i don't see anything <laughs> um, you know like you're like but it, it's working perfectly on my side why can't you see anything and it's it's very hard to to just debug these things to figure out why it's not working because you have to have a second person now unreal lets you open two windows and they act as you know server and player but it's it's never the same as having another player actually there because either you have to play the game twice at the same time which is very difficult for testing obviously yeah. or you have to pull in someone else um, and you know it can be hard to to sync up on times for those kind of things. Sean you mentioned uh 
from the outset this idea, well, this thing, documentation. What yeah. what kind of documentation is it? Big old written word files. Uh, yeah, not much has changed from the old days. Like I still have notebooks on my desk all the time for writing down ideas. Like eventually all of these things will go into sort of a Wikipedia style um, document that we keep uh, for each game. But yeah, like, you know, anything we want added to the game, any ideas we have for the game all need to be written down somewhere in some, you know, strict format. Um, it can be very valuable just to have someone on the team whose entire job is maintaining that documentation because at the end of the day, that's what determines what the game is. Because no matter how great your idea is, if no one understands it, there's no game there. So we've had designers that have come up with fantastic ideas, but then when they write them down, the programmer misunderstands and suddenly there's a whole conflict there and either you end up with the the feature going wrong or you end up with wasted time because you need to now re-describe that that feature to the to the programmer to explain it again so i think like all projects start with heavy documentation like the project we're currently on it's probably about 300 pages of just various you know um this is the general outline of the story that we want to go for this is how this attack works this is how this ability works everything has to be written down somewhere we do some outsourcing as part of our job. And the first thing we would request from any outsourcer was a constraints document. Basically, like what can we and can't we do uh, within this world? You know, when you think of your game, what do you think is correct and what do you think is not correct? So you'll often find games have a whole page dedicated to just the tone of the game. Um, you know, are they going for dark humor? Are they going for kind of a wacky feel or are they going for a mature feel and then everything that we design so if you're designing a quest or a storyline it has to incorporate that tone you know it would be very odd if you were playing a super mario game and suddenly there was a quest about assassinating the president of america <laughs> but if you stick that into a game like saints row suddenly it makes a lot of sense because or a grand theft auto style game you know that that's fine um so these these bibles that just house the core rules, the canon of the game, are extremely useful to to everybody involved in the process. Um, artists will often have their own style guide or style bible. So any new asset that's created for the game has to follow, you know, um, certain color schemes. You know, if it belongs to a certain faction, that faction will have a certain set of colors associated with them, and everything to do with that faction has to be given it. It's not necessarily the most realistic thing in the world, but for the sake of games, we need to make sure players can quickly identify, you know, this is an enemy, this is a, a friendly person. So having these really strong color guides uh, that the player may not even notice consciously, but subconsciously they can pick them out even in a crowd or in, in an instant is very useful. Um, you said earlier that you are like a some level designer. That's someone that I will relate to platform games only, like, but also like, quest games or whatever also have like levels but i'm not i don't associate like these two parts of it and how you divide these quest games into like more little parts uh yeah so i worked on a game called the outer worlds um which was out last year it's um made by obsidian the same people that made fallout new vegas so it's kind of um you know it's a first person rpg kind of shooter game so for that They don't have level designers in their studio. They have what's called area designers. So they do kind of uh, split it up there. Um, so what what we would do is we would take 
sections of the game uh, that we call dungeons because we work in games, so everything's a dungeon. Um, if basically, a dungeon is anything that is separate from the main world of the game that you like load into. So we were asked to create these dungeons, and we had to, you know, obviously we had to scale them to a certain difficulty, everything like that. So what we would do first is we would be given a general idea of what that dungeon was. So you know, this used to be a facility that created um, like chemical weapons or something. So we just have a general idea of what it is. Uh, the first thing we would do is go in and we draw like a 2D layout of that whole area. So like top down each floor, we'd break it down into like, you know, the bottom floor was for, you know, processing the chemicals. The second floor was for packing them into the weapons. And the third floor was shipping and receiving. And it would have like a helipad on the roof to take them away or something. So we have to think about what this building was used for and how it would be built. So like a little bit of architecture knowledge goes a long way in these kind of 3D games. One of the things I was complimented the most for in my entire time was my placement of a toilet, um, which was both my proudest moment and my saddest moment um, as a designer. But uh, I came up with a scenario where the boss had his room and then the meeting room was on the other side. But between those two rooms was the toilet. So as a power move, the boss would always be coming out of the toilet into the meeting room. It was very ridiculous, but it fit the tone of the game uh, quite well. But we have to come down to, you know, wh where do these people sleep? Where did they eat? You know, if, if this is a live-in facility, we have to accommodate for that. If they live nearby, then we need to put cars outside the facility to show how they come in and out. We just need to make a, play a space kind of believable to the player. Even if a player is not really going to dig in and be like, hey, where's the toilets? When there aren't any toilets in a game, players kind of feel it in a weird way. Um, or when there's no food or no kitchen, it's like... It just feels a bit off. Um, even sometimes we get away with just putting in a locked door with actually nothing behind it that just has a sign saying kitchen. And that's enough to get away with those kind of things. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in games. There's a lot of doors to nothing. That kind of thing is, is just to make the place feel bigger without actually needing to make it bigger. And then for difficulty, so difficulty, I suppose, comes down to a lot of the type of game as well. Because we were making a, a role-playing game that had like level-up systems, what we would do is we would set a level range in that area. So we expect the player to be level 20 when they enter this area, but they could be up to level 25 or level 30. So we'd set the range of that dungeon to 20 to 30, and the enemies automatically get stronger or weaker based on how strong the player is. So that would be another big thing that the programmers would take care of is like this scaling system. So, But at the end, you'd need a, a designer to come in and say, when this type of enemy is level 20, they have 10 attack, uh, 20 defense. At 21, they have 11 attack, 21 defense. Someone needs to come in and make all these rules. So I'm getting distracted by it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is very frustrating when you can't find a good toilet. Um, <laughs> there's a whole uh, video series dedicated to how good toilets are in games based on if you can flush them or not and what kind of sounds they make. People really care about these things. So, um, uh, then if you're, yeah, so like platforming is, is the most obvious like level design yeah. one, you know, who decides where the platforms are, who decides where these things are. But I, I suppose like level design, yeah, calling them area designers makes it feel a bit more realistic in that, you know, they decide what this area was, what it is. Almost every area we design has to have a backstory written for it which might seem like overkill, but it 
then tells you how to design the space. Like the space ideally designs itself. So, so you do like a previous write down about the ideas that this place, what do you want to tell about this place? And then yeah. you design it. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, yeah. So we'll generally have a backstory or a premise and then a series of goals that we want that space to accommodate. Those goals can change depending on, you know, if if we want to tell a specific story or have the player get a specific item, those those need to be accommodated as well within that space. Your relationship with the writers must be important then because they're putting flesh on the bones. Yes, extremely. Um, so, you know, on the Outer Worlds, they had a lot of writers because that game is very heavily text-based. So every time we put down a note or a computer or a new character, that's a whole new job for the the narrative team to come up with. So there's usually at the beginning of a project, we will, or at the beginning of a new area, we'll sit down with a narrative designer and kind of work together to decide a narrative budget for an area. So we know, you know, we're going to have two characters in this location, three computer terminals that have a couple of emails on them each, uh, and then one like major story terminal that gives you a lot of information or progresses a quest or that kind of thing. So there's a lot of back and forth with the writers. And generally when we're doing dialogue trees, so, you know, the player can go through, uh, the designer will design the most basic version of that tree possible. Um, so just enough to get the player through. And then a narrative designer will come in and add, as you said, kind of the flesh on the bones there. They'll add a bunch of extra dead ends to that dialogue tree or loops back in the dialogue tree to make it feel natural. But if we had our way, the dialogue tree would be like, hi, hello, give me this item. no okay, or I'll kill you. And that's it. That's our whole dialogue tree. But then a narrative designer will come in and suddenly it's brought to life and the character has actual personality. Um, so a lot of design is, you know, giving something rough to somebody and having someone give you back something beautiful. <laughs> so you make it like the simple way and they add like the magic of the game. Like they... Yes, okay. exactly. In level design, we give them what's called a block out, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of blocks um, and it says like, this one's a tree, but it's just a green block. And this one's a house, but it's a big brown block. And then the artists get that and they turn it into a whole town and you're like, man, do they even need me? <laughs> but then you talk to them and they're like, I would have no idea where to place these things. So um, there's definitely times you feel a little inadequate. as it's... <laughs> Is there a point at which there's too much additional detail coming in and making it more complex than necessary or harder to play even? Yes, absolutely. One of the most common complaints or criticisms that like, you know, as a design team, we sit down, it's very hard to design alone. You want to design with someone else just to bounce ideas back and forth. And one of the things you'll often hear someone else say is like, no one's going to understand that. You know, you'll you'll come up with this amazing concept and they'll just be like, no, that's too complicated. No one will understand what you're trying to do here. Or someone will be like, well, what if we just add this whole new asset to the game? And they'll be like, no, we don't have art budget for that. We don't have a programming budget for that. So scope is like, if there's going to be scope creep, it generally comes from design first. Um, and we need producers and art leads and programming leads to come in and tell us to tone it back, keep it, you know, keep it simple. Um, at the end of the day, a game just needs to be kind of fun, but it's only fun if players know how to play it. No matter how interesting and how complex your systems are, if no one can play them, there's not much point. A lot of the games that people enjoy the most, going back again to the likes of Super Mario Brothers, the player only has a couple of options at any given moment. You know, do I run? Do I jump? Do I pick up this power up? 
that's kind of their main thought processes and that that keeps it simple um these questions are like more personal like um as a game designer which game will you consider like a masterpiece or something that you would say oh that's brilliant well i, I didn't know how they come up with this huge idea hmm that's a big question <laughs> my <laughs> my favorite game uh, is a game called wizardry eight it's it's fairly it's not a super well-known game but there was a lot of them obviously because it's wizardry eight um <laughs> but there you know this was released i think in 2001 um so it's a very kind of old school rpg but it's got one of the most interesting worlds i've ever seen created just the diversity they have like a whole tree village full of these little what would they be kind of like hamster people they have kind of like a demon village that's ruled by this like um demon queen that seduces one of your male party members and they can't attack her anymore because they're in love with her there's just all kinds of these amazing interconnecting systems and and the end the whole world is created by a book and whatever you write in the book becomes real and at the end of the game you have to decide whether you want to take that book for yourself or give it to someone else and like you can create a world and It's it's just a really really interesting world. I mean, it took eight games. It, it draws on previous like six and seven as well. So it took a lot to put that world together, but it's it's incredible. If you're looking for something more modern, I really enjoyed Journey, uh, which was a small indie game about just a walk through the desert. I think I know this game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I that see. that's a game that's at its core the most simple of games. All you do is walk and jump, but the way they put it together and the way like I. There's very few games that have hit me very emotionally, but at the end of Journey, like I was close to tears and all I was doing was walking. And... The music helps in that game. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the music, the the art style, everything about it, yeah. it. It's just, it's fun to just move and walk around. It's, you get it connected to random people and you can only communicate through these like chirps and jumping, but somehow you form like a more intense connection to those people than you do to people that you talk to for like 20 minutes in any other multiplayer game. So um, it's just, yeah, I think that that's a game where I, I don't understand how they took such a simple concept and turned it into something quite so beautiful. And a game that you have designed or been part of it that you feel like super proud of it, which, which will be the, the one. Um, so I think it would probably be the outer worlds, the one I mentioned earlier. So that was the RPG I mentioned Just because, I think part of that's because it's made by the same people who made the original Fallout series, uh, which was a game I grew up playing young, as I was, you know, when I was a kid. So just being able to work with those people and see how they, they worked and to be able to, you know, add to a, you know, it, it's not a, a Fallout game, but it's a, it's a spiritual successor. It's definitely got a lot of the, the same influences and the same team there. And being able to be part of something like that was, was incredible. A lot of my stuff got cut in the end, but... It was still very nice to be part of it. And my last personal question is like, do you think that like the image of game designers have changed now that the video games are more like a pop culture or something that they were like more of a, I don't know. So back in the day, it wasn't uncommon for designers to not give their real names on games. Uh, there was a culture of using nicknames, you know, back in the very early days, especially in Japan where, you know, honor is a, a big deal and like this kind of like, you know, don't stand out from the crowd too much sort of idea. So working in games was not considered a good career. So people would kind of almost hide it. Um, but these days, you know, you've got the likes of Hideo Kojima, who's almost a rock star uh, in the Japanese world. Uh, 
there's been a few attempts on our side, uh, like of the world, to to make people uh, into these big rock stars. I think Cliff Blazinski was like they tried to push him as like the cool guy in games, and he did a pretty good job of it. Um, but I think people aren't ashamed to say their job. When I tell people my job these days, usually the response is like, oh, that's really cool. You know, that's, yeah. you know, I actually get positive responses. Whereas like, if I told my mom when I was 15, I wanted to be a game designer, she would have been like, absolutely not. Is there anything you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? I think if you want to work in design, one of the best things you can do is, is kind of learn a little bit of everything. I need to know a little bit about programming, a little bit about art, a little bit about architecture, a little bit about philosophy and psychology. You kind of need to know how people think, what what's fun. But one of the best things you can do is, is just play a lot of games. But don't just play the games that you're you're familiar with. Try to play lots of different types of games. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of modern military games, but I still try to play them because they're popular and I need to understand why they're popular. Multiplayer games stress me out more than anything, but I still need to play them. So that I can understand what makes a good multiplayer game. You know, you have to play these things with a bit of a critical eye, but at the same time, make sure you enjoy yourself, because if you're not enjoying yourself, then there's no point studying that game, because if it's not fun. But I suppose you can learn why it's not fun, but that's a whole other question. Um, thanks for coming here, Sean, today. It was like a, um, a good um, conversation we had here. And thanks for sharing your knowledge on game design. Thank you for having me. It was very enjoyable. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Game Chat on Design Talk. Thank you to Sergi Casas as lead interviewer, and thanks to the Game Design class in UCD for providing the settings for this interview. This episode was recorded on February the 25th, 2021. The music used was Spliff and Wesson by Airglow.